Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, good morning, Liberty Heights. It's uh, great to see you again. I always consider it a privilege to be with you, and uh, it's truly an honor to, to uh, bring God's Word to you today. And I actually had so, some pretty nice flowery things to say about your pastor, because I knew that he would not be here today. Uh, and so I thought today's the day I could really praise him and affirm him in front of you, and uh, I'm no longer going to do any of that. So... Um, but I, we do love you. I love Brad. He's such a dear friend. And again, it's, it's always a privilege to be with you. So um, thanks for having us back. Uh, we're certainly looking forward to being in God's Word together. And to that end, we're going to be in Mark chapter 4 today. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Uh, as we'll look this morning at one of the most uh, significant events in the life and ministry of Jesus. It's become... Uh, one of my favorite sections in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 4. Now what Pastor Brad did not tell you is that uh, I'm here today with my wife Christina and then uh, we have four children who are not with us. They are uh, up with uh, my parents having a great time with family over this 4th of July weekend. And when my kids were little, uh, you know, they're almost all teenagers now, but when they were little, you know, they, they, they went through just the normal phases you go through in childhood. And I don't know about you, but we found the terrible twos to not be nearly as terrible as the terrible threes. And uh, I don't know who coined the phrase terrible two, but my guess is they coined that phrase when their children were two, and they were just so worn out coming through the threes that they couldn't even come up with a phrase for the threes. Uh, because we found the threes to be much more uh, trying than the twos. And when your kids are a little like that, and we had four, um, about, I don't know, six, six and a half, seven years apart, something like that. Yes, I know how it happens. Okay, so um, all of our kids were close together. And, and there were a lot of times when, you know, they would get into arguments or they would be bickering with one another. Or they would, um, you know, be, be arguing over toys or something. And, and, you know, as a parent, I know many of you are parents or, or grandparent today. And, and you know what it's like to be a parent when maybe from upstairs, there were many, many times when my kids were little from upstairs, I'm having to call down to correct them, to tell them to uh, cut it out. Hey, just get along. Hey, stop it, whatever. There are many, many times as a parent, you're calling down to the basement or you're calling down to the main floor of your house and, and that is sufficient. Your kids hear your voice, they hear your tone, they hear your sternness and, and that's enough. But then there were many other times as a child I know I experienced this with my parents, and then certainly as a parent, there were many times when my voice was not enough, I had to show up in the flesh. And the word became flesh. Are you with me? And I had to dwell among my children. Anybody else relate to that today? There are times when the word is not enough, the word has to become flesh. And I know some of you are millennials, and uh, all you understand is that when you did something wrong as a child, you were told to go somewhere and to think about it. People from my generation never had that opportunity. Let me, let me tell you how I had to think about things as a kid. Listen, in my generation, okay, anybody could beat you down in any place, okay? You could be going through a Kroger, and if you started acting up, some stranger coming past you could give you a spanking right there in the aisle, and your parents would say thank you, Right? So I know some of you are having a hard time relating to this, but, but, but there are times as a parent when the word is not enough, the word has to become 
flesh. And, and here's what we're seeing in the Gospel of Mark. Let me get you caught up to chapter 4. Mark, and of course this is true of Matthew and of Luke and of John. The four Gospel writers are, are all writing with a simple purpose and goal in mind. They're, they're writing to communicate that Jesus was not just a great teacher, not just a great leader, not just a powerful influencer. No, they're writing to provide evidence, eyewitness evidence, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, that he's the Savior of the world. And the, the, the gospel writers, Mark included, I think Mark was the first gospel written, and, and Mark is, is, is writing his gospel to communicate that Jesus is the Word made flesh. Mark, here's what Mark's trying to communicate to you and me and certainly to his original readers. Mark's trying to demonstrate that for many, many, many years, God spoke through his prophets. Through many years, God spoke through his choice servants. And God, of course, worked through that. But all of that was pointing to a greater day when God would not just speak through a human being, a servant, a prophet, a priest. No, Mark's helping us to understand that we have something more significant that we're beholding. The word has become flesh and has dwelt among us. And as John says, we have seen his glory. Glory. The one who has come from the Father, full of grace and truth. Mark's helping us to understand that we are now living in a significant time in human history whereby the word has become flesh and dwelt among us. When God is no longer speaking primarily through his prophets and through his messengers. No, here's the beauty of this. God has now spoken directly through his son, the Messiah. And so as Mark is building his case, and as Matthew and Luke and John are doing the same, but, but, but as all these gospel writers are building their case, they're walking through now the life and ministry of Jesus. And again, with eyewitness testimony, they are demonstrating, they are proving that Jesus is more than just a prophet, more than just a great teacher, more than just an influential leader. No, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And as we get into Mark chapter 4, we find Mark talking about, and really illustrating for us one of the most significant moments in the life and ministry of Jesus. Because Mark's going to highlight for us today something that Jesus does that truly no man could do. You know, you and I have less control over our lives than we probably care to admit. <laughs> we, we take comfort in the things that we can control we have some control over our financial future. We have some control over our children at times, <laughs> after you work through the twos and threes. You actually, when it comes to children, you have some control over them from about the ages of four to 12, right? And then when they get to 13, you just hang on <laughs> tight and, and you hope for the best. But, but we, we have some control over our family. We have some control over our job and what we do in our career. We have some control over many things in life, but we have less control than oftentimes we think. And one of the things Mark's going to help us understand about Jesus is that Jesus is in complete control over everything. And in the ancient Near Eastern culture in which Mark lived and ministered, one of the things that was widely understood to be something that no human being could control was the weather. 
Now, we know that today in our culture because we always complain about it. Three weeks ago, we were complaining about how much rain we had. Now we're complaining about no rain and it's way too hot. (laughs) And I'm right there with you. We know that we don't have any control over the weather. All of us in this room want to be meteorologists where you can be wrong for a living and never lose your job, right? Because we understand that we, nobody controls the weather. But in the ancient Near Eastern world in which Mark lived and wrote his gospel, there was a deep-seated understanding that if someone could prove that they could control even the weather, then they would demonstrate they are truly God and that they possess the power of God. Again, that's not so much built into the fabric of our culture in terms of our religious systems, but that was front and center in Mark's day. If someone could demonstrate that they could control even the weather, then they would demonstrate they are no human being. They have certainly the power of God. And so Mark includes early on in his gospel, again, one of the most significant accounts of Jesus that I believe we find in the gospel of Mark. We find Jesus on the sea with his disciples when all of a sudden a horrific storm arises. Let me show you what happens next. Mark chapter 4. Let's begin reading in verse 35. Here's what he says. Now on that day when evening had come, he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. And so they left the crowd and they took him along since he was in the boat. And other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so the boat was already being swamped. And he was in the stern, Jesus that is, sleeping on the cushion. And so they woke him up, and they said, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? And so Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Silence, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Now, notice as Mark includes this specific account of Jesus' ministry, that his account is consistent with an eyewitness account. Now, maybe you're here today for the first time. Maybe you're investigating Christianity. Let me give you one of the most important aspects of the Bible. The Bible is not a book that contains various myths or legends. In fact, as you compare the Bible with other ancient and well-known myths and legends, what you find is that the Bible is very, very different. The Bible is not written like a legend. No, the Bible is written, especially the New Testament, the Bible is written as a series of eyewitness accounts. Mark here includes details that would never be included in some kind of legend or fable. Let me give you a few examples. First of all, Mark writes with great specificity that on this day when the disciples were crossing over the sea with Jesus, that that, that there were other boats with them. A detail that seems completely unnecessary. Except that the disciples were there and others were there who also experienced this. There were eyewitnesses there. Mark tells us that Jesus laid his head on a cushion or a pillow. Again, a detail that seems completely unnecessary except for the specificity that demonstrates authenticity. So I want you to see up front that this miraculous narrative is something verified by numerous eyewitnesses, as are the other miracles and incredible works of Jesus. 
You see, this account in the Gospel of Mark is something that's been verified by many people. There were numerous eyewitnesses, not just those on the boat with Jesus like the disciples, but many others who were in other boats with them who experienced the same thing. And what they experienced was breathtaking. For we find in verses 35 and 37 that that these disciples, many of whom, most of whom, were seasoned, lifelong fishermen. That they encounter a tremendous storm here on the seas to the extent that the water's breaking over their boats. The the, the boat is, is being overrun with water and the disciples are fearing for their lives. Now, again, you need to understand how significant this is because they were expert fishermen. They weren't like me (laughs) or my brother who's taking my children fishing here in a couple of weeks. You know what he's doing to prepare? He actually bought a book on how to fish. That's how pathetic we are. We played baseball and soccer and stuff like that. We never fished growing up. And, and, and my brother's taking my kids fishing, and he literally had to buy a book, and he's reading through the book on, on how to fish. I've taken my kids fishing. There's a little kind of pond close to where we live, and I've taken them fishing. One time I caught a huge fish. I, it, it, I felt like my, my rod was going to break. And literally, here's how I fish when I get a big one. I, I, in fear of losing it, I, I, well, this is a true story, I actually just ran up, and I, I popped the fish up on the shore. I think that's a cool strategy. You're not going to find it in any books or on any television shows, okay? So we're not expert fishermen. Our culture at large is not an agricultural society or a fishing society. But go back to the first century when most people to whom Mark is writing were based in agricultural societies And in the case of many of the disciples, they were professional fishermen. That's how they made their living. They had been on the sea numerous times and encountered countless storms. They had seen little storms. They had seen big storms. What's unique about this one is that literally they are fearing for their lives. Okay, They are fearing for their lives. That gives you an idea about how significant this storm was. And so in, in desperation and pure, pure panic, they try to find Jesus. And, and notice here that Jesus, in verse 38, is resting comfortably on this pillow or cushion, Mark tells us. And, and he's not even stirred up by the storm. Jesus rests peacefully. And so the disciples run down, and they wake him up, and they say, now pay close attention to this. They say in verse 38, teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? Do you see the desperation here? What are you doing, Lord? You're, you're here sleeping. We're like up on top of the boat here. We're, we're trying to, to just find a way to survive this, and you're down here. You don't even care about us. They were just so distraught by the apparent callousness of Jesus. And before we, we again, kind of get too stern with the disciples, don't we feel that at times ourselves? I mean, have there been times in your life, maybe there's a time now, where the sentiment being repeated in your heart, in your mind, is Jesus, I'm hurting, I'm suffering, I'm struggling, I've called out to you, I've prayed to you, and yet you have not answered don't you care about me? 
I mean, have you ever asked the question, why? Have you ever struggled so much crying out to the Lord that you wonder yourself, Lord, what in the world are you doing? God, where are you? Listen, this is what the disciples are experiencing. Here they are in the midst of the storm. They're looking for Jesus. Surely Jesus loves us and wants to help. No, Jesus is taking a nap, and he's very, very comfortable. And so they come down, and they, they stir up Jesus, and they're like, don't you even care? And so he, what happens next, again, is staggering. Check this out, verse 39. He gets up. Jesus gets up. He rebukes the wind, and he says to the sea two words. These are two separate words in the original language. He says, silence, be muzzled, literally is what it says. So let's break this down. First of all, Jesus gets up, doesn't even address the disciples. I love that. <laughs> they wake him up. Man, what are you doing, Jesus? We're, we're, we're literally, we're about to die. Don't you care about us? Jesus pays them no attention, walks up to the, to the main deck of the boat, and Mark tells us he calls out to the wind, he calls out to the rain, and he rebukes the storm. That word rebukes a very strong word. It has the idea of rebuking a child. It has the idea of rebuking someone or something that is beneath you, that is smaller than you. And if you've never yet, again, rebuked a child, then you don't have children, okay? <laughs> if you've never had to speak and say, no, 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 listen to me, then, then you probably, you're not a parent yet and you'll get there. Listen, my wife and I were... We're um, watching some kids in our church a couple of months ago. We had this thing we call Parents Night Out, and our staff was serving our church. And we had a group, I think, of like uh, two or three-year-olds. And, again, it all gets fuzzy after a while. And, um, and we had them, in, and, and we took them into our, we have an, an indoor playground. We took all the kids into our playground, and we said, all right, kids, now everybody come in here before you can get on the playground. you got to take off your shoes. All right, everybody take off their shoes. Kids start taking off their shoes. One girl, I'm not kidding you, lay down. She wasn't taking off her own shoe. I didn't know that girl. I don't know her parents. I'm sure they're wonderful members of our church. You know what that girl needed? A spanking. Okay, that's what that girl needed. No, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. All right, take off your shoe. Bam. And so what did I do? I laughed and I, I took off her shoes. I took off the one. The other leg came up. I took off the other one, you know. You can guess what happened when we said you had to put your shoes back on. I put her shoes on for her, right? I think her name was Cinderella. I don't know. I'm not really sure. You know what it means to maybe speak to a child, you know, where you're rebuking, you're, you're speaking to someone and you're the person of authority, okay? Jesus rebukes the storm. Mark doesn't tell us he speaks to the storm. He rebukes the storm. How does Jesus rebuke the storm? As something over which he has complete authority. Are you with me? And as he rebukes the storm, he says two words. He says, silence, be muzzled. In other words, here's what Jesus said. And these are two different tenses in the original language. He says, present active imperative, be quiet. And then he says, and stay quiet until I direct you otherwise. He uses a present active with a present passive, which if you're not a 
grammatical individual, but yet, again, you're a parent or a grandparent. You've done this because maybe you've said to your kids at some point, go to your room and stay in your room until I tell you to get out. You've done this. It's a unique construction in this original language, but I want you to see how significant it is. Jesus, first of all, rebukes the storm as something that has less authority than he, and then Jesus says two words, and you be silent, and then you stay silent. Now that's important. Because immediately, notice what happens next. Immediately, Mark tells us, again, with many eyewitnesses there, Mark tells us that the wind ceased and there was great calm. Literally, that word great is is the word mega. We use that word in English, don't we? Mark tells us that when Jesus rebukes the storm, he does so by saying, silence and stay silenced. And immediately Mark says, the wind, the waves, and even the water become calm, but not just calm, they become mega calm. Now you want to know the greatest miracle that happened on the sea that day? Not that it stopped raining. And not that the wind stopped blowing. There would be some skeptic who would say, oh, what a coincidence that Jesus, at the moment he yelled out to the storm, the wind settled down and it stopped raining. But no skeptic could address the issue of the calm water. Because you and I know, as these experts knew back then, That even if the wind stopped and the rain stopped instantaneously, the water and the waves on the water would continue for several hours, right? What does Mark say happened? Jesus rebukes the storm. What does he say? Silence, and you stay silent. And immediately the wind stops, the rain stops. But now here's the true miracle. The water is immediately calm. What kind of calm was it? It was mega calm. It's a great calm. Perfectly still. The only time I've ever seen this in my life, a couple years ago, my wife and I were in South Florida. We were on the Gulf side. And for some reason that day, out on the water in the Gulf and certainly on the shore, there was no wind. And we'll never forget it. We, we went out into the ocean. We had an afternoon free and we went out into the ocean and that water was perfectly still. I've never seen anything like it. No waves, nothing. You could see straight down to the bottom. It was awesome. You could go out as far as you literally could go, and you could look down at the bottom. It was like bath water, nothing, no movement, nothing. We found all kinds of sand dollars. I found these creepy starfish with like 12 legs. I picked one up and said, oh, honey, look at this. Snap, fell back in the water. I'm just holding a leg. I felt bad, but don't worry, they grow back. It was like crazy. It was like just this, you're out there in the, in the ocean, in the gulf, and it's like perfectly still and calm. It's so unusual, and and, and I want you to understand here on this sea, in the middle of this horrific storm, what is happening? The, 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 the disciples and others with them in these other boats go from a place where literally they're going to die to a place where seconds later, not only does it stop raining, not only does the wind stop blowing, but immediately the sea is calm. And it's mega calm. And you and I look at that. As we read the New Testament and we're like, how cool is that? 
How amazing is the power of Jesus. How encouraging to know that Jesus is in control of everything. Was that the response of the disciples? No. Jesus says, silence, and you stay silent. And immediately it stops raining, the wind stops blowing, the sea goes from a state where there's six-foot waves, 12-foot waves, whatever it was. It's, it's, it's perfectly calm. And the response of the disciples, let me read it to you again, was this. Mark says, and they were terrified. They were terrified. Remember, they're still coming to grips with who Jesus is. And when they saw Jesus demonstrate this level of authority and this kind of sovereign power, what is the response? They are terrified. And they say to one another, who in the world is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Can I say it this way? They were now more afraid of Jesus than they ever were afraid of the storm. They came to understand for the first time on that fateful day that they were in the presence of God. God made flesh. They came to understand that day in a, in a new and a fresh way that Jesus is the Messiah. And by that, he is God. Because only God could control the weather in that way. Only God in his sovereign power, only Jesus the Messiah with the power of God as the one who is the second member of the Trinity, only God could do what happened that day. And so now they're more afraid of Jesus than they are of the storm. They're terrified. They're in the presence of God and their eyes are open more widely than they were before and they're coming to grasp with the fact that Jesus truly is the Son of God and he will prove to be the Savior of the world. It's a reminder to us that when human beings encounter the presence and the glory of God, go back to the Old Testament. When the saints of old encountered angels and visions, their response was not to clap their hands and say, oh, that's awesome. Their response was to wet themselves. They were terrified. They were scared, afraid for their lives. They, whenever a sinful, fallen human being like you and me come in the presence of the holy, powerful, sovereign creator of heaven and earth, the immediate response is to see our finiteness, is to see our sin, is to see our flaws, and we are terrified to be in the presence of glory. The disciples here see this incredible miracle and they understand what they're looking at. They're looking at God made flesh and they say to themselves, who is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. And they come to understand what you and I, I pray, understand today in 2019 in the middle of the summer that we serve a God who is infinitely sovereign, supreme, and in control of all things. And we serve a God who loves us and who has demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Jesus, the word made flesh, he died for us. 
And because he was not and is not just an ordinary man, his death was not an ordinary death. And he took the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin, and he took it upon himself. And when he rose from the dead and appeared to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses, he proved that he has provided a way where you and I can be forgiven of all of our sin, and we can bask in the glory of eternal life. We can know God as our Father. Listen, and and therefore our terror turns to love as we see the ministry of Jesus, yes, and we rest in his sovereign power, but we also rest in his loving grace. I believe Mark is echoing the story of Jonah here. Think about it. Jonah was resting comfortably in the bottom of the boat, wasn't he? Those on the top deck, fearful for their lives, come down and they, and, and they call out. And, and, and Jonah ends up being the one who's cast overboard to, to bring the sea to a calm. Here, what is Mark helping us to understand? That Jesus is a better Jonah. Jesus got up. Jesus went to the deck of the boat. And Jesus ultimately, if you know the end of the story, cast himself into the sea of God's judgment so that you and I could have forgiveness and eternal life. What did Jesus himself say? He said, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. But we know Jesus didn't stay in the belly of the earth. He rose from the dead. And we praise him for that today. And so we say, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this? who has triumphed over death. He is our Savior, our Lord. And let me just give you this word of encouragement today, Liberty Heights. He is the God, the Savior, in whom you can trust. This Jesus calms the storms on the Sea of Galilee, and this Jesus leads us to endure even through the storms of life. Listen, I want you to understand that Jesus is working today, that the Holy Spirit has preserved this word for you and me today, that we might be reassured where we live, where we are, in the storms that we endure, in the hardships we endure, in the days we feel like the disciples. Hello? When you get a bad report from the doctor or you're going through a season where there is a rebellious child or you're suffering some, some kind of broken relationship, you're, you're going through something where you've called out to the Lord and you're saying, God, don't you care about me? Rest assured, looking at the life and ministry of Jesus, he does care about you. He does love you. And this same God who through Jesus calmed the sea will one day rescue all who know him and look to him. And he will absolutely wipe every tear from our eye. And he will establish a new heavens and a new earth where there will no longer be any pain, no longer be any grief, and no longer be any death. This is our hope today. That's why Jesus and his ministry is called the first fruits. What Jesus has done is going to be passed along to all the rest who believe in him. And therefore today, we ought not be like the disciples who have such little faith. No, we marvel at Jesus as the one who calms the wind and the waves, the one who has conquered death, and the one who saves us by his grace. Someone said it like this, I love it. The experiences of life are sent to men with a purpose. And I want you to know today that there is nothing you experience in this life if you're a Christ follower that is not first filtered through the hands of your Father's providence. I'm reminded of 
Johnny Erickson Tata, one of my favorite Christian figures, still alive today. She's, a, if you don't know her, a quadriplegic who broke her neck as a teenager in a diving accident. She's now in her 70s. She's lived a life confined to a wheelchair, but yet her testimony is that God used that tragedy to bring her to himself. Now, I recently came across something that Johnny Erickson Tata said that it, just, it encourages me. I thought it would encourage you as we, as we think about the ministry of Jesus in this respect. Listen to what she said. She says, I hope in some way I can take my wheelchair to heaven. Now, that's a strange request, but listen. <laughs> she said, with my new glorified body, I will stand up from that wheelchair on resurrected legs and I will be next to the Lord Jesus and I will feel those nail prints in his hands and I will say, thank you, Jesus. And he will know I mean it because he will recognize me from how hard I leaned on him during my sufferings. And then I will say, Lord Jesus, do you see that wheelchair over there? Well, you were right. When you put me in it, it was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. And the harder I, I leaned on you, the, 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 the more faithful I found you to be. I don't think, listen to what she said. I do not think I would have ever known the glory of your grace if not for the weakness of that wheelchair. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. And if you know Johnny Erickson Tata, you know she's been one of the chief encouragers of the church for the last 50 years. And then she concluded by saying, now, Lord Jesus, if you like, you can send that thing off to hell. <laughs> what a glorious day that'll be. Listen, I want you to understand, whatever you're going through today or maybe whatever you'll face here in the future, you have a God who loves you, a God who is faithful to you, a God who has the power to do all things. And a God who is faithful to accomplish all that he has told you he will. Because you and I were not ultimately made for this earth. We were made for something better. And Jesus, by being cast into the sea of God's judgment, but coming out of it through his bodily resurrection, has already accomplished all that is required for salvation eternal life. We just believe and we follow in faith. And so if you're here today, listen, I want you to see the legitimacy of Christianity. I want you to see this is not some myth or fable. I want you to see this is all about the word being made flesh. It's about the ministry of a man from Nazareth who lived among us and who proved time and time again that while he lived among us, he is not like us. For he is the son of God. And if you've never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin and you've never trusted him for eternal life, I want to encourage you to do that today. Because you know what the good news is? The scripture tells us that all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. And if you're going through a time today where you're, you're calling out to the Lord, maybe, and you're wondering, God, where are you? I hope you're encouraged to see. No, you you're not going through anything that's not filtered through your father's hands. He loves you. He's faithful to you. And he will accomplish all that he's promised for your good and for his glory. We serve a great and a powerful and an awesome God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you today. We thank you that Jesus has proven to be a better Jonah. 
that when asleep in the stern of the boat, he proved just by the power of his word that he possesses authority over all things, even the weather. And we know that just a couple of years after this fateful day, he went to a Roman cross and he was cast into the sea of your judgment as you poured out on your son who was innocent the judgment that reserved for all who are guilty. And so God, we thank you today for Jesus. We thank you for his saving grace. We thank you for his powerful resurrection. And we thank you, God, that by your invitation, we can know this victory and this salvation personally. So God, I pray for anyone here today who doesn't know you as Savior, someone who's carrying a burden today that they can't get rid of on their own. God, may they find relief and, yes, even salvation in the person and work of Jesus. And Lord, I know that there are many here today who are going through a difficult season. God, we all go through them. Whether it's a season of grief or sorrow, of pain, of disappointment, of frustration, of brokenness, God, we call out to you. We pray that you'll help us to to be reminded today that you are a God who is in control of all things. Even the wind and the sea obey you. There is nothing impossible for you. And so, God, we pray for your comfort today. We pray that by your spirit you'll give us the means to persevere. God, I pray that you'll give us even joy in the journey. And God, that you'll help us to be found faithful until either you return or you call us home as we await the day when you will reign supreme over a new heaven and a new earth. So we love you, Father, and we ask for your blessing today. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen.